1: Back in on the Gabe Coon Show, 92.9 FM ESPN. It's time to bring on my guy every single Tuesday. It's it's customary. You have to bring him on. That would be Christian Fowler, senior writer and content creator for Bluff City Media. We have a podcast called The On The Bluff Pod. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, full-length video, version on YouTube. He is on X at C Fowler, BCM. Christian, how's it going, brother? Everything's wonderful,
2: Gabe Coon. How
1: are you doing? I am doing well. I, uh... I enjoyed recording last night, and I also enjoyed while, you know, sort of before we went on, we got to see uh, Tennessee versus Memphis women's basketball. Went to overtime. A little thriller, 84-74 in overtime. Alex Simmons has them going in the right direction. Don't usually give women's basketball a whole lot of love, but that was fun to watch last night.
2: Yeah, I mean, we got to check out the, the tail end of it before we started recording, and it's a good sign. I mean, obviously, they didn't pull out the win, but right. to take the number 15 team in the country... To overtime play competitive is definitely a good time for Alex Simmons and the women's basketball program.
1: No, I want to see that game be played on the men's side too.
2: Yeah,
1: that's of that's that. I think that's where I'm at. It's always depressing. Cool. It's always depressing to think about what what, uh, what has transpired in the past with the bald fist game and the you know COVID canceling the game in Nashville. That's it's just I, I think we need to let bygones be bygones. It should be an every year thing. Yeah, coaches may
2: not be the biggest fans of each other,
1: <laughs> as we know. Well, I mean, I get the sense that Penny is willing to let it go as far as uh, sort of the, the past is concerned to go play that game. I don't know if Rick Barnes is on that same page. And, I like, yeah. I will say this. I, I do get the sense that, like, Tennessee, there's no, there's no massive upside to playing Memphis in the non-con, right?
2: I mean, I, I guess not. But Especially, it's for the fans. You know, we, it's for the consumer.
1: It would be exactly. for the for the that, fan bases.
2: Right. It's all about the fan bases and the rivalry. It's not about does it make sense for non-conference for Tennessee or you know the beef in the past between the coaches. I, I, who cares about any of that? It's for the fans and right. for the for the state, just for the overall state uh, of Tennessee and the the two basketball programs. So. I, I'm I'm in the same boat with you. They should do it every year, but here we are.
1: Well, Tiger basketball stood uh, stood on business when it when it comes to uh, non-con. Their first game against Missouri environment, and just left no doubt like that. I I. I'm not saying it's the best win of the Penny Hardaway era, but it is the most intriguing win in the fact that it's early in the season and you're handling business that you said you were going to handle. And it definitely, it definitely leads a lot of the fan base, us, to believe that this team can accomplish the things that Penny, that basically every player on the roster think they can accomplish.
2: Yeah, and I want to start just by talking about the odds were kind of stacked against Memphis in this scenario, truthfully. I believe that Memphis is the better and more talented team. Obviously, they showed that on Friday night, but they're going into a very hostile environment. It was a huge weekend for Missouri sports overall. They had uh, Tennessee coming to town for a 13-14 matchup. Holy, and by the way, good the Lord, sidebar,
1: time. sidebar, they beat the hell out of them. Mizzou beat the hell yeah, out of Tennessee. Yeah, they they mopped the
2: floor with Tennessee on the football side. So, like, you knew the fan base was going to be riled up because when, it, when it's a situation like that, when it's a huge weekend like that, like, you can kind of feel the electricity, and I'm sure that's how it was in Columbia over the weekend. So you're coming into a hostile environment, uh, very – inexperienced team as far as playing minutes on the floor together. They had one true game that meant something under their belts, playing a quality top 60 opponent, SEC opponent, and they come out. First half wasn't perfect. No. Second half was dang near perfect. Win the game by 15, hold Missouri to 19% from the floor. Really, just overall, both ends of the floor, offensively, defensively, your star players played like star players. Javon Quinterly showed exactly why. He is Memphis's point guard this year. Why Penny Hardaway and the staff went out and got him as their point guard? Jordan Brown looked much better in this in this game. JaQuan Walton showed that once again. And, and I know this may sound a little overblown and could sound a little hyperbolic, but I don't believe it is. I think he is one of the most efficient scorers in the country, and I know numbers back it up. And I know sometimes we can get lost in numbers, but you just watch what JaQuan Walton does and the ability that he has to score from any level and the lack of volume that he has to have to do it is extremely impressive. So overall, Memphis passed this test with flying colors and this is a huge win for them. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think it's the biggest win of the Penny Hardaway era. We've seen wins over Houston. We've seen the win over Tennessee. Like We've seen some big wins under Penny Hardaway, but as far as just like early season games that give you confidence and that goes from the coaching staff to the team, to the media, to the fan base. Like, this is a win that instills confidence in the entire program right. from the outside in. And that's that's something I'm not sure if we've really seen before. I know the, the Tennessee game was, what, maybe mid to late December when they knocked off mm-hmm. Tennessee – um, but as far as, like, first three or four games, obviously this being the second game of the year, like, I just don't think we've seen Without this. Penny Hardaway on and the I, sideline,
1: everything else. Are, I mean, it,
2: right. Now, yeah, <laughs> that's not even to mention. Penny's not right. even out there. So just overall, this was extremely impressive, top-to-bottom win for Memphis.
1: And very encouraging. I uh I, So the conversation that comes up every single year with Penny and, and a team that he's coaching is pecking order. And I, I saw first game – I think Jaquan Walton and David Jones, especially on the offensive end, were at the, were at the top of that pecking order. First half was Jaquan, Jaquan Walton against Jackson State. Second half was David Jones. This game against Mizzou, a guy who had a whole lot of experience playing at Mizzou, being in the SEC for a few years at Alabama, it was Javon Quinterly. I know that it is a recurring question, a recurring theme with every Penny Hardaway coach team. Do they have an established pecking order? But I, 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 I want to ask this. With this particular set of circumstances, with the amount of talent they have, do you think it matters as much as past years? Because everyone wants to discuss that, but I'm almost ready, just looking at the amount of talent they have top to bottom, I'm almost ready to throw that conversation out of the window. I feel like any given night you could have a different pecking order depending on who's hot and who's not.
2: I couldn't agree more with that. And I think think the reason that is a conversation is because of the frustration of years past which I get, and I think you would agree as well. Like, we've of seen some pretty frustrating lineup changes and rotations. And it's been like there was clearly a player that needed to be on the floor in a specific situation. And maybe it just didn't happen at times. And I'm with you on this team. They're so deep, they're so talented that it really is kind of a hot hand feel. Now, you have your cornerstone players, of course. But the way that I think you can use them and kind of weave them together in different ways is much different than in years past because we've talked about this, especially over the last couple of weeks. Like in years past, there were players that could be injected or taken out of the lineup that affected the overall unit and just brought just brought the team down. whether it was a, it, in most cases, it was a lack of offense when when players subbed in or when different players came in. And with this team, I just don't see that. I think they are so well-rounded on both ends of the floor. I think they have so many guys that can score 15-plus on any given night. Like, I, I'm with you. I, I think they are – I think a pecking order and a conversation surrounding that about how important it is, this is – I'm with you. I don't think it should be a conversation. But if, if it is, this is the least important of important pecking order – or a certain group of guys on the floor at the same time has been under Penny
1: Hardaway. Now that leads me to the uh, starting lineup conversation because Jordan Brown has not been inserted into it, neither has Caleb Mills, although they play a lot of minutes. And we look at uh, the game against Mizzou, the top five, I mean, of what we thought was going to start, Javon Quinterly, Jaquan Walton, David Jones, Jordan Brown, Caleb Mills, got the most minutes, and they also led the team in scoring. Those were the top five scores. Do you think there's any point – like, uh, there's two different thoughts here. Like, don't mess with success. Let it roll. Whoever you want to roll out there in the starting lineup, whoever you want to use as far as rotation is concerned, that's fine. You, you, you've had success through two games. The other thought is, okay, get your most productive guys on the floor at the same time to start the game. Like, where where do you fall on that? I
2: think I, think I could make an argument either way, honestly. Um, But at the end of the day, to me, if those five guys are playing the majority of the minute and they're on the floor together in crunch time or in important moments like they were for the majority of the second half against Missouri, then I really don't have too many complaints about it. Now, if we get six, seven games down the road or if we get to the battle for Atlantis and it costs Memphis a game, because they started extremely slow because they didn't have Caleb Mills and Jordan Brown out there to start a game, and they dig themselves. In a yeah, hole then and the conversation becomes completely different. Then, then that conversation really starts to heat up. But as far as nitpicking who technically gets the start, it, to me it doesn't really matter that much. As long as those five guys are playing the most minutes, as long as they're on the floor together for – Uh, whatever that amount of minute stretch time is that you want to say is the golden number or whatever, as long as they're on the floor together when it matters, to me the optics of it aren't super important. But if it does cause uh, either a loss or a very stressful situation when it didn't need to be, then that conversation definitely can heat up.
1: Now on to uh, Memphis football, 8-2 right now, have SMU 11 a.m. ESPN 2 coming up this weekend, final home game of the year. Uh, I, I think it's fun. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion, before we really break down the game and what has transpired, as is, is ugly as it has been in these wins against inferior opponents, right, I think this team has earned the platform at home against SMU. biggest game since the, the last time uh, we had SMU in town fighting for an AAC championship berth, that whole thing. I think this team has is, is definitely earned some eyes and, and earned the attention of the fan base. Uh, regardless of, of what you think has transpired on the field. They have won ballgames. Um, I know it was ugly against Charlotte, 44-38 in overtime against a really bad team, a team that couldn't throw the ball, a team that threw four interceptions. But at the same time, 8-2 and two is 8-2 and two with a chance to potentially play into the AAC championship. I think that that is something worth celebrating.
2: Yeah, I mean, we definitely can sit here and pick apart all the Oh, and the we will. Is. And we will, Christian. And Trust yes, me. We yes, will. We, 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 we will get there. But to start it off, a win is a win is a win. And, and at the end of the day, they sit at 8-2. and two. They've taken care of business no matter how ugly it has been, especially over the last three weeks. But they've won the games. And that's, that's the important part of it. Have they earned any style points? Absolutely not. Hell no. They have not made it look pretty. They... <laughs> They could have rolled through South Florida and Charlotte and North Texas. They did not do that. They did not inspire any confidence as far as them going to another conference championship game or them being able to beat SMU. But I'll pose it to you like this. Memphis could have blasted all three of those teams over the last three weeks and lost to SMU. Yep. And it would have kind of of felt empty. Okay, they've played those games very close, and they've made them super sketchy. They go beat SMU even after this stretch. Then all is kind of forgotten, at least for a moment. So it it doesn't really matter. Like I said, does it inspire confidence that they will do it? No. Not necessarily. But is it on the table? Is it a possibility? Do they still have to go out there and play the game and see how the ball bounces? Yes, absolutely. So they've taken care of business. It hasn't been pretty. But the opportunity is in front of them, and at this point in the season, being eight and two, with a potential AAC championship berth on the line, like you really can't ask for much more. Like, and I'm not saying there aren't negatives that let's let's continue to keep that in there because there absolutely is. But you're eight and two; you have a chance to compete for the conference, and that was the goal.
1: Um, now, the last three games, let's get to them. North Texas. They gave up 42 points defensively. South Florida, 50 points defensively against one of the worst teams in uh, college football as far as offense is concerned, Charlotte. They gave up 38 points, 198 yards to a, a running back in Hassan Wilson who had four career yards up to that point. Hadn't run the ball this year. 198 yards and three touchdowns. Now, I think that these three games defensively, their woes have all been in different fashions, right? Against North Texas, you do have a good passing offense, so you saw you, you thought it could be possible. Chandler Rogers is a really good quarterback, but you had guys in position in the secondary who couldn't make plays on the ball. Then you get to the South Florida game, they give up 50 points, and it wasn't guys in good position not making plays on the ball. It was guys out of position completely, busting coverage after coverage and, and letting Byron Brown, a, a freshman quarterback, throw all over them. And then against Charlotte, it was largely – Power running, play action to the flat, to the tight end, and that was was moving Charlotte's offense. I, what, what do you sort of attribute to the struggles they've had defensively? Like, is it scheme? Is it players not being locked in? Is it missed tackle? Like, what, like, can you, because I've had struggles with this, and I know we've both had struggles with this the past three weeks, but. Is there anything in particular that you just sort of point at and say that has been the big problem with this Memphis defense and why they have fallen off a cliff down the stretch of the season?
2: If if it's anything that I can point to, because like you said, you and I both have struggled with finding something to say, okay, here is concrete evidence that they're struggling in this area or with this or with this scheme or with this kind of offense. But the fact that you mentioned that it's been – passing game and running game, because I would say at least for the two previous weeks to this week, we would have said, okay, at least the run defense wasn't horrible. Yes, they got thrown all over, but the run defense wasn't awful. Well, uh, this week, as you mentioned, 198 yards, three touchdowns. uh, The defense got four interceptions, and Charlotte really couldn't throw the ball, but they couldn't stop the run, and they couldn't stop pretty basic schematic runs and that is extremely concerning so if I can put my finger on one thing and say I think this is definitely affecting it and there's got to be stuff behind this that we don't necessarily know about or definitely can't figure out but if you go back to like the Boise State game and even even the Tulane game which I you know I know the defense didn't play great and they ultimately lost that game But at least it felt like the defense was flying around and making plays. And you go back even earlier to the beginning of the season, they were really flying around. Now they just kind of look timid. Like they just look completely out of sorts. And like, I I, I don't know. You know this as as a former player. Like if you're thinking while you're playing, you're probably not playing very well. It, yep. it, a lot of it has to be natural and instinct and preparation, and they just look like they're thinking too much out there, and they're not just reacting and playing football. And that gets you into trouble everywhere, whether it is you know, coverage bust or tackling or taking wrong angles or say if you're a linebacker or a defensive lineman and you're thinking about taking on the block and making the tackle and you're not just reading and reacting and playing – and that causes you to play slow and be a step behind. And that's what we've seen the last three weeks. They've just been slow and a step behind, mm. whether it's in the passing game or the running game. So to me, that's the only, that's the only evidence I can give a little bit of uh, this is where some struggles are coming from. But who knows why that happened? Because this is a defense that was playing with confidence early in the year, albeit against inferior opponents. But, hey, Charlotte is an inferior opponent as well. As you mentioned, 16 points per game, one of the worst offenses in the country, one of the worst overall teams in the country, and they couldn't stop them. So they're back to playing inferior teams, but the defense didn't didn't go back to the early season mode. So it it is very confusing and frustrating, but if they're going to find a way to knock off SMU and compete for a championship game berth, the defense at least, has to fly around, make some plays for be opportunistic, yep, yeah, they can't just be a limp noodle out there, yep, or it is a wrap.
0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
1: Um Now, you brought up a very interesting point uh, when I was talking to you last night. You, you basically said, because we knew that this four-game stretch with three on the road, UAB, North Texas, and Charlotte, it was BYOE. Bring your own energy. Because it's just, there's not a lot of of hype around those games, the the you know, fan participation at those particular places is not going to be high. You brought up the point that, you know, if they do play well against SMU defensively, we may have a different issue altogether, and that's that they want to play up to competition or play down to competition. Now that is not uncommon. Like I had a team, you know, twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen I should say, when 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 we beat Ole Miss at home that defense was dreadful that year, but really stood up against Ole Miss. Was locked in, only gave up twenty-four points. We won thirty-seven to twenty-four. Um, so it's not uncommon. But if they do come out and have a good sort of week against SMU defensively, you you talked about it maybe being a different issue that they they get hyped up for big games and against teams that they that are inferior. They're sort of they're sort of stagnant, um, not bringing energy. And that, that's a completely different problem. And I don't think that that is a problem that, that will lead you to believe that going even into the future, that this would be a team that, that uh, can win at a high level. Like, I, I thought that was an interesting point you made. Correct. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah, 100%. And with this game coming up, with this SMU game, you would imagine this is not imagine, you would know 100%. This is the most energy. As far as the atmosphere that they're going to play, that, that they have played in, in in quite a few weeks. Even though they had the South Florida game at home, it was South Florida game. Like it wasn't a game where you're going to get much hype. So, with all that being said, I'm not going to be surprised either way with how this defense plays. Like that's just where I'm at right now. If they come out and Preston Stone slings it all over the yard, it's and expected, SMU right? easily, easily clears 40 points or 50 points or whatever. I will not be surprised. If Memphis' defense comes out and they look inspired and they're creating negative plays, whether it's sacks or tackles for loss or uh, you know forcing pre-snap penalties or forcing turnovers, and they actually look pretty decent, maybe allow you know, 20, 28, 30 points, something like that, which doesn't sound great, but in, in, where we're at right now, 28 <laughs> yeah, points would be a for welcome sign. I wouldn't be surprised by that either. Like that, that's just where I'm at with this defense because we've seen the good, we've seen the bad. So we know they can play good. There's there's no debating that they can at least look decent. But there's also no debating that they can get shredded by one of the worst offenses in the country. So I, I have no idea how this is going to play out, but I won't be surprised either way. I, I, think, I think in this kind of environment and this kind of atmosphere – With what's on the line, it would be hard not to get up for this game. Now, you throw it to a 1 o'clock kick against Charlotte on the road, I can see how that's difficult to get up for. This game I don't think they'll have any problem with, and I think if they do that, maybe they'll play a little bit better defensively. Mm -hmm. Even furthering my concern, though, (laughs) is that if they do end up beating SMU, (laughs) <laughs> this defense feels like they would go to Lincoln Financial Field the following week and allow a terrible team to put up a ton of points. Right. Now, I know that's getting way ahead of ourselves, but it's on the table at this point. Yeah, And then that's a totally different conversation. But that's just where I'm at. Like, it, the, nothing that this defense does is going to surprise me, short of them coming out and, like, clamping SMU down. Completely, completely stoning and allowing, them, Like, yes. two
1: touchdowns. Yeah, yeah, but then, the, but that, then again, but even surprised. with that, you're, the point still remains. Like, if they do that, where was that the last three weeks against way is so way inferior opponents? I mean, so right. uh, just not even close to this SMU's level.
2: Right, no rhyme or reason to it. Just and, and what we used kind of for an example on this on the podcast last night was the Missouri and Tulane game. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. They still allow big plays in those games. But those, I mean, Missouri. They played substantially is
1: the, better ball. I don't think anyone would deny yeah. that.
2: No, Missouri is one of the best teams in the country, and they held them the, what was it? Was it 34 points? 34.
1: 34. And, 34, they, and I thought and they then, played largely well against the run, the leading rusher in the, uh, the uh, SEC right now, Cody Schrader. They played well against him until the fourth quarter. Then they started to, you know, Mizzou imposed their will a little bit, made them uncomfortable.
2: Right. And Tulane, they played really, really good defensively in the first half. So it, it, they've done it against yep. way better competition than Charlotte and South Florida and
1: North Texas.
2: So there, there is no rhyme or reason. This defense makes no sense. There's no figuring them out.
1: All right. Now last thing I have to move to the NFL. What the hell is wrong with the Bills, brother? I know you watched that game last night. Five and five. We have uh, Ken Dorsey getting fired. And I, you know what? I, I can I say this? I get tired of analytics folks talking about EPA per play and how good the Bills have been under uh, Ken Dorsey with EPA per play. I think that that is a, a good reason to throw that stat out. The fact that they're five and five and they're top three in EPA per play. But regardless, right. what the hell is wrong with? I mean, Josh Allen turns the ball over at a crazy rate. That team has no business being in the position they're in right now.
2: Right, and let's look at the game last night. Like, if you go look at what happened against the Broncos, the Broncos controlled the clock for the majority of the game. They forced turnovers. They didn't necessarily capitalize on them, which is why they were in the position late in the game that they were. But they outplayed the Bills through the entire game. Despite all of that, it was still another Buffalo mistake that allowed the Broncos to win that game. Twelve
1: men on the field real, and a whistle yeah, kick, on, real, on 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 a, on a what, emergency whatever you call it fire drill kick. It's ridiculous, right?
2: Like twenty four seconds left, no timeouts. The Broncos knew they were going to have to rush on the field. The Bills knew the same. They they knew what the what the situation was. They had no timeout. So as soon as that third down snap was over, both special teams units were going to rush onto the field and get set. And they get on the field, Will Lutz misses the kick, wide right, 12 men on the field. Yep. You can't do that. <laughs> no, you, just
1: you can't. can't. You can't do that. And here's the thing that I put out there years? last night, because I've been, like, whistle kick is what they call it in college football, and we always practiced it at our, at our uh, sort of uh, pregame walkthroughs and everything else. Um, that field goal is going up no matter what. They don't have a timeout. Yeah. They uh, You could have – nine people on the field, and it wouldn't make a difference. That that kick is going to go up. I know you want to get a field goal block out there, but it's really hard to get that done, uh, to get your unit out there and, and and clicking on all cylinders when it's that quick of a turnaround. I just – that is a – that is one of the worst gaffes I've seen of the NFL season. Like, that is as bad as it gets.
2: Yeah, that that's that's a mistake you just don't see because – Special teams coaches typically are very, very good about their personnel and their situations. And to have 12 men on the field, and one of those guys being Terrell Bernard who's off the ball. Yep. And, and, and that's just going back to what you said about it doesn't matter. Odds are you're not going to block the kick. It's very rare to block a field goal. But to have 12 men on the field, one guy off the ball, Ugh. kick misses, and then they get to, he gets to kick it again terrible and I I want to hit on what you said about the EPA per play and stuff because I think it's very interesting and I know analytics are a big part of the game now but what analytics can't tell you is if you watch the Buffalo Bills play football they are not averse to taking risks they're going to take a lot of risks. they're going to throw the ball a lot they are not any sort of methodical team that is going to rely on the run game Although they've been one of the best running teams in the league this year when it comes to yards per carry, James Cook's been really, really good in a featured role. Latavius Murray's been a, a solid at least, you know, short, short yardage and goal back. They've ran the ball really well. But Ken Dorsey just refuses to run the ball. He mm-hmm. won't run the ball. Yep. A- and what that does to your defense as far as limiting time of possession and keeping your defense on the field more – just from not running the ball, not considering the fact that you're throwing the ball so much, so turnovers are going to be more prevalent, incomplete passes and clock stoppages are going to be more prevalent. You're doing your defense no favors, and in years past, they've been able to mask that because they've had the dogs to do it on the defensive side of the ball. And not to say they came into the year devoid of talent on the defensive side of the ball, but when you lose Tredavious White to a season-ended injury, when you lose Matt Milano to a season-ended injury, maybe it's time to revamp the offense a little bit to help your defense out. Because you, even still, I think, uh, I, I think their safeties, Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, I think both of them have missed time as well this year. Uh, they've, they've just been ransacked by injuries on the defensive side of the ball, and Ken Dorsey has done nothing to help them out. He's exacerbated the situation and allowed teams to go even further after their weaknesses on defense because he refuses to try to keep his offense on the field and control clock.
1: Yeah, and largely I think they're a predictable offense. And I'm not saying Ken Dorsey shouldn't have been fired. He probably should have been fired. I still think that Josh Allen, some of the turnover issues. I don't know if uh, our guy over uh, with the Giants, Brian Dayball, I don't know if he had enough time with Josh Allen to make sure he could rid him of all of all of the, the ills because he's always trusted his arm talent far too much, and he is turnover prone no matter what, even when he was with – Brian Dayball, but I do stand by that. I think Brian Dayball left a little bit too early, and I think that's hindered Josh Allen's sort of uh, progression um, into the, the. I mean, he's he's a superstar, he's elite, but it's it's hindered his progression as a Super Bowl champion type quarterback, right? I think that that has limited that team offensively. But I'll say this: Ken Dorsey getting fired, I I am wondering. You know, that is somewhat scapegoaty, somewhat understood, and it looks like Joe Brady's gonna take over. But Which is they're gonna run out game. but here's my thing, they're gonna run out of scapegoats, and I wonder if at the end this this comes down to Sean McDermott. Can you get the job done? Can you I mean you, you there's changes they have had to make over the years. Run the ball more, take a little bit off of Josh Allen's plate, make sure that defense built for is built for the playoffs, play with a little bit of edge so you don't get run over, bowled over by the Cincinnati Bengals in the snow at your own place like you did last year. They haven't made those changes, yeah. and I wonder if at some point that comes down to Sean McDermott losing his job.
2: Yeah, I want to I want to touch on Joe Brady first and then talk about Sean McDermott a little bit. Joe Brady is known to be a scapegoat. He was Matt Rule's scapegoat in Carolina, if you recall. But before that, Joe Brady was looked at as one of the, young, the up-and-coming, yeah. innovative offensive of minds in all of football because of LSU. He was at LSU in 2019 with that incredible national championship team, and he had to go be an offensive coordinator for the, the Panthers who were completely devoid of offensive talent outside of Christian McCaffrey. And so I'm kind of cautiously optimistic to see what he does. Now, I know he doesn't have a full offseason of preparation – It's hard to change a lot of things at this point in the year, but just as far as rhythm and play calling and how he puts his fingerprint on this offense, I'm kind of excited to see because we saw saw the Ken Dorsey experiment. It it hasn't been great. Uh, He obviously is not as good as uh, Brian Dayball was at developing and helping Josh Allen. So I'm very curious to see what Joe Brady does. But as far as Sean McDermott, you and I have talked about this in the past. Defensive-minded head coaches are getting closer and closer to being a thing of the past. Right, and that's not to say that there aren't exceptions to that. D'Amico Rhines is is absolutely showing that in Houston right now.
1: Yeah, Mike but Tomlin for a long time. Is,
2: right, but even him, his offense hadn't over 400 yards. Still six and three games. though. <laughs> right, still six right. and three. Right, but, but you look at Bill Belichick. Even Bill Belichick right. is catching up to him. Like defensive-minded head coaches just are not really the wave anymore. It just it, it, It's just hard to be a defensive-minded head coach and have success in this modern-day NFL. And I saw this tweet the other day. It said the Bills peaked with 13 seconds left in the divisional round in 2021. And I think that is one of the more accurate NFL tweets I've seen this year. It's hard to see them getting back to that point that they were. Because we, we can't do football math and we don't know. But in my opinion... If the Bills ultimately would have won that game against the Chiefs, I think they would have won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I think they would have beat the Bengals, and I don't think the Rams could have touched them. Even though I know the Rams got hot, I, I think the Bills had the guys up front to stop Aaron Donald in that defense, and that was the Bills' opportunity right there. And that was two years ago. And here we are. They sit at 5-5 five and five, outside looking in on the playoffs, and who knows what happens the rest of the year for them.
1: Yeah, it's about windows, and, and windows close pretty quickly. And we'll see if the Bills can rebound, but it's going to be interesting to watch. Now, I, I do want to I do want to leave you with this because you brought up D'Amico Ryans. Yeah, D'Amico Ryans, and it, and it sort of furthers your point about defensive coaches maybe being a thing of the past. D'Amico Ryans is a good coach, and I'll give him credit for that. But ultimately, what have we seen from that team? Why are they having success? C.J. Stroud is phenomenal, and Bobby Slowick, his OC, young guy, is setting the league on fire, and he'll likely get it, be able to be part of the coaching carousel this time around with some of these openings that inevitably come at the end of the NFL season. So, yeah, D'Amico Ryans has been phenomenal as a head coach and leading, that, leading the charge with that entire organization. But at the same time, the offense has paced the way for that team. As they're not a defensive team at this point in the season. As much as I like D'Amico Ryans, that's the truth of the matter right now and why the Texans are having success. It's T.J. Stroud and Bobby Slowick and that brain trust they have.
2: Right, and I will say for D'Amico Ryan and the defense, like it's been better than we expected.
1: Right, right. It's not, but it's great. still, it's but it's perfect, still offensively is the reason they are beating yeah. a team like the Bengals, thirty to twenty-seven. Right. Yes, one hundred percent. I like
2: I said though, that defense has been a little bit more impressive than I think most of us expected. But you're absolutely right. Like Bobby Slowick, where did he come from? San Francisco. Yep. He is another. He's another Kyle Shanahan, Mike McDaniel guy. He worked with both of them. I think he has been he was in San Francisco from, what, maybe 2018, 2019 until this year. So plenty of time to work under arguably the two best offensive minds in the NFL, maybe in all football, in yep. um, Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan. And he's showing, once again, that in that offense and what you learn from those guys, if you carry it over, and I know they're not running the same exact system, as Mike McDaniel is in Miami, or the same exact system, right. system that Kyle Shanahan is in San Francisco, but you see the fingerprints on it. You see the long play actions. You see what happens. Really, you see what happened on Sunday when they finally get a semblance of the running game. Now they got a huge semblance of it with Devin Singletary running for 150 yards. But it just it feels like another one of those things that man, you know, Bobby Slowick deserves all the credit. But Kyle Shanahan and Mike McDaniel know what they're doing. And they can really raise up some offensive minds. And you have to have the quarterback to do it. And C.J. Stroud has been nearly flawless as a rookie.
1: He's been phenomenal. Now, Christian, appreciate it, man. We'll do it again next week. Yes, sir. Talk to you all next week. Yes, sir. That's Christian Fowler, senior writer and content creator for Bluff City Media. Our podcast on the Bluff Pod. Get it at Apple, Spotify, full-length video version.